0: Hey guys, welcome to VS Energy's BMS podcast with Mark Sankey, Rich Fish, and myself, Clayton Ferry. So in today's podcast, we will be discussing the basics of open system operation and functionality. Now, if you remember in our previous episode... We discussed the beginning of the BMS, starting with the invention of a thermostat and how the industry has moved towards open protocol communication. Let's start with a discussion of standard systems and the challenges with upgrading. Marker Rich, do you guys have any input on that?
1: Standard systems is kind of a uh, very gray terminology. Uh, what is standard systems? I mean, that's almost a, a definition that's needed to Give some context.
2: Well, in the BMS world, and we've gone around a number of different times, you know, there are, there's a, we want to draw the distinction between standard systems and open systems. So there are standard systems, you know, Johnson, Johnson controls N2, you know, that kind of stuff, but they remain unpublished. Uh, and uh they are not open in terms of okay they'll they'll allow other technologies to ride on that platform but it, it's not an accepted documented platform like uh the ANSI standard 135 for backnet or the lawn work standard or you know even in the in the industrial world you have modbus standards whether it's modbus rtu modbus ip or Profibus or DH Plus or DH Plus Plus or any of those that are not only standard, but also documented and open so that there's a published protocol that anyone can subscribe to. So what
1: we're really talking about are the standard systems that are basically proprietary
2: communication. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And there have been many of those throughout the early history of... uh, Johnson Controls, for instance, um, you know, their earliest standard system was Johnson Controls N1 talking on ARCnet, which was, you know, another deterministic protocol, which was uh, master-slave token passing protocol uh, early on. So, yeah, that was a standard system. But was it open? Absolutely not.
0: So if if you're a facility looking to upgrade, I know we kind of covered this a bit in our previous episodes, but it's very labor and cost intensive to do an upgrade to get towards an open system, correct?
1: That can be quite variable, Clayton. The, The cost to upgrade oftentimes is going to be driven by a number of factors associated with what the legacy system is. There are some legacy systems that are not horribly difficult nor costly to integrate, depending upon how the vendor that put them in built the system, as well as whether or not that standard proprietary protocol was ever published for uh, other people to write integration drivers for. So it can be quite variable whether or not that's a, a major cost or an acceptable, you know, not too difficult cost.
2: Correct. And, you know, interestingly, the cost for controller hardware has come down so significantly, depending on whether the field hardware, meaning sensors, switches, actuators, valves are in condition to be reused and are compatible with reuse. For a large scale integration, it's easier, especially when the equipment is very old, to simply replace uh, the controller hardware and interface with existing uh, field sensors and or reuse the wiring, et cetera. Um, You know, we've gotten a number of situations where for love or money, you couldn't get documentation for the protocol. Um, We just finished a big project at an airport with a very closed protocol and very closed program that, what do we need, Clayton, one page of code? And it was fifty thousand dollars, one page,
0: yeah, yeah, you're absolutely (laughs) correct. Yep,
2: (laughs) it was no more rich than uh, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt 20 minutes of work, 50 grand. Yep, and once we had it, we were off and running. But that's you know, when you're in a monopoly, I guess you get to set the prices, but um. a little bit of insight back to one
1: of our previous podcasts as to why those big companies did not want to go to open protocol.
0: That's right. That's right. So Mark, you, you brought up a a good point too, in in, um, what you're saying about the airport, there was a lot of network topology that was kind of unusable. And we, we had to bring in a lot of fiber and copper to be able to make, you know, all of the, all the systems communicate properly. Is, is that something that often occurs in facilities looking to do a large-scale you know, integration or BMS network upgrade? I know it's a pretty broad, open question, but... It can be uh,
1: pretty dramatic if you're going from, uh, obviously, copper to fiber. It can be pretty dramatic if you're going from simple twisted pair field-level networks to an IP-level network. Um, if you're going from a system that may be lawn-based and you're going to a backnet based system, a lot of that cable is then of no use to you from the standpoint of reusing a COM cable. So it can vary considerably if you're upgrading from one backnet MSTP to, uh, you know, a Say an IP-based system, and you're going to integrate those backnet MSTP devices. That, and you can, you know, keep a lot of that cable and reuse it. Obviously, in any retrofit situation, you're trying to keep your costs under control as much as possible. Reuse everything that you can that is reliable, functional, and you know meets the the needs of the, the equipment. So it's it's such a case by case basis. I've seen so many different ones where you go in and just basically rip and replace uh, pieces of hardware, re- reutilize all the cabling, and it's a fairly simple, quick project. And then you get into cases like you were mentioning for your airport project where you you're tearing out a ton of cable and replacing it with either copper
2: or fiber. That said, and I agree a hundred percent, it is oftentimes Simpler when there is an existing network infrastructure in place just to parse off a separate VLAN and Ride that same copper or fiber uh, So that maybe there doesn't need to be as much main backbone run and those kinds of things But it, you know in the early days of automation Heck there was a just twisted shielded 18 uh, Two was the primary communications then maybe it was coax uh, So all of those are pretty much primary obsolete communications media.
1: Yeah, there is pretty much not much that can be reused these days with the current products manufactured by 90% of the DDC hardware manufacturers that would make any use of coax cable. And even a lot of the, you know, if you've got an 18-gauge twisted shielded pair, it's tough to get a reliable network with the speeds that they try to run MSTP these days without having you know some kind of a low-capacitance cable. And that stuff back then, that 18.2 twisted shielded pair, was not low-capacitance.
0: Yeah, that, that makes sense, too. So you, you can't just go into a facility and say, oh, yeah, I have what seems to be a whole bunch of You know, usable wiring. Whereas if it's older and you're installing new devices and new equipment, you need the low capacitance, new cabling. Kind of going off of that, a lot of people may uh, use the term interoperability and integration kind of hand in hand, but that's there. There is a difference with that. And I don't know if Mark or Rich, you want to speak to that.
1: Oh, the difference there. I mean, all you need to do really is go to a dictionary and look at the different definitions.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I agree. And I agree 100%. Um, The way I can uh, respond to that, though, is that most folks think that when you integrate, that basically it's uh, merged into it like a a, uh, grafted, uh, branch onto a tree, where it becomes uniform and over time invisible in terms of functionality to um, the the end system a heart transplant, a one transplant that's integration in many people 's minds when in essence it's interoperability because it's functioning, sharing information and function back and forth. so when we talk about integration generally we at VS Energy are talking about it synonymously with interoperability. However, there, we always draw the distinction when we write specs design projects that the system will be integrated and interoperable. So there's no you know, fallacy that, oh, you can see it on the screen, but that doesn't mean you can write to the data. You can't change set points. Those backnet objects aren't fully available Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. And, and, um, they're going back to the to the earlier podcast. That distinction is not always drawn by engineering entities that sometimes write integration specs.
1: You're absolutely right. Most uh, people, when they're when you tell them they're getting an integrated system, they're assuming interoperability, correct? Which is a mistake every time to assume that integrating something means it's interoperable. Just snipping out of the definition of interoperability, the capability of systems whose interfaces work together, past, present, or future in implementation or access, here's the caveat, without any restrictions. Integration typically comes with a lot of restrictions.
2: Correct. And the most common restrictions are basically at the programming level, uh, which that, that's pretty common. Obviously, if you have you know system A and system B, each device will have its own programming tools. The objective would be, obviously, to have the tools to program both of those systems in the end user's hand when the system is completely uh, integrated it interoperable. And
1: how many nickels do you have stacked up on your desk for when that happens?
2: <laughs> well, uh, without a excessive, uh, pain, angst, weeping, wailing, gnashing of teeth, uh, not too many. It, it takes work. It does. And, you know, unfortunately we have garnered a reputation, which, you know, um, in the field with owners, they love us. The big three in generally, not so much because they know when we write a spec, uh, every word of it has a meaning, every sentence of it has an intent. And we we basically hold the contractors to the uh, specifics and the intent of the specification. and we've we've actually had large companies withdraw from projects after a post bid you know review where they said well we we see this all the time and we think it means this read the sentence to us and tell me how you think it means this well this is what we always do I said read the sentence and tell me it. and in a couple of instances they actually withdrew their bid because they said well we we can't do that I mean, it's unfortunate, but in the in the world of plan and spec projects today, it's it's uh, commonplace for folks to say, "Well, we we think we know or we believe they will accept X and Y and not Z because that's what we always do." And it's also incumbent upon the designing engineer to enforce the specification and understand that what they write is part and parcel of a contract and if, if you expect a b and c in the contract then you need to get a b and c not just a and b in some other alternative
1: there needs to be uh, for an interoperable spec and an interoperable result a lot of forethought planning coordination with different manufacturers and a lot of folks when they're looking at a plan and spec job they don't do that. And you get what you just described. You sit at a scope review meeting and they tell you, well, that's, we do it this way because that's how we've always done it.
2: We sat at a bid review meeting one time. This is anecdotal, but it's still funny uh, with a, you know, probably the biggest controls manufacturer in the world bid the job. And I said, you know, they don't have, they, at that time they didn't have backnet." We sat in the meeting. Now we're there with some high powered players, you know, at the company and uh, the sales guy, I said, but he said, well, we're going to, we're going to put the whole system in. And then when we release backnet, we're going to flash it to BACnet. I said, so what does that entail? Well, you know, we've always had BACnet. We just didn't call it BACnet. I said, what? I, I said, is any of this, this equipment BTL tested? No, but it could be. I, I mean, that you know really capsulized the state of the controls business for me. We've always had backnet; we just never called it backnet. That that's just an unbelievable statement.
0: So, I I got a question just for uh, my own enlightenment as well. So, interoperability can you uh, retrofit an existing, and this is again probably very open, but an existing facility and do a, a spec to have interoperability or would that be more geared towards just integrated? That again, Clayton is going
1: to be a case by case basis based on what is currently installed. Uh, just going to a recent project that we looked at where vendor X had an existing backnet system installed. The owner was not happy with, what they got. In fact, I believe they're actually in litigation on a number of things on that project. But we were asked to look at going in and basically replacing the front end, bringing all of that existing stuff into a new front end and being able to execute sequences, schedules, set point changes, do trending. And the first thing that our team has to do is determine, okay, is that actually, even though it's a BACnet system, is it actually an open system? Are the BACnet points exposed? Uh, if they're not exposed, then you basically have a closed system. It doesn't matter. You can sit there and say, yeah, we're backnet," but it's not capable of being interoperable or integrated into someone else's system because they've not exposed any of the points to the network, or in some cases, you get situations where while there, it may be an open, say, global controller, if we're all familiar with what a Java application control engine is, which is utilized by a lot of people as an open integration tool, some manufacturers that utilize that product lock that product down, so the only tools that work with it are their tools so there's an open license setting within the jace itself if they don't open that license then you can't do anything without their tools so it's it's difficult to say that you have a common occurrence every time you go to integrate an existing system to make it interoperable there are so many challenges that uh, have to be researched uh, addressed as to how you can Do what the customer expects to do. And in some cases, it requires replacing hardware that should not have needed replaced.
2: That's correct. And Rich, you're speaking about relatively current technology, almost state of the art technology and installations that can still be locked down. Going further back into history, there are systems for which BACnet interfaces are available. You know, you can put a NAE in a Johnson system. You can put an OPC driver to backnet on other systems, et cetera. But oftentimes when you put a project like that, you know, either start to negotiate or, or bid it, there's a complete unwillingness on the part of the inc- incumbent contractor to participate. And that may drive you into the necessity to replace
1: hardware. Absolutely. And, you were being nice when you said a complete unwillingness that was too soft a term uh hostility hostility <laughs> is correct
0: yeah so tell me a little bit then about where and what first of all the the seven layer osi model is and and how this comes into play with integration and interoperability and just kind of the the diagnosis of systems so the seven layer osi model
2: has been around for quite a while not everybody Uses it or refers to it. I basically uh, use it as my own checklist to be able to understand what kind of communication is happening in a, in a um, automation system. And you know, pretty simple model. Basically, at the application layer, it's it's producing what's called an APDU, an application protocol data unit, which is basically the source of the data that's used to Move up uh, through the through the layer all the way till it gets to the data layer link. So in the presentation layer, there is encryption added and/or definition of the entry type. So uh, if you if they run an app uh, encryption application, uh, it runs in the presentation layer. The session layer of the uh, model is the layer where data units APDUs are packetized and changed into a data packet the transport segment that's what we're all familiar with it's either TCP or UDP and then network is where it's converted into IP or IPX packets and then, then the data layer link is where we do the error detection and what kind of error detection do they run there and we combine raw data into packets and then the media type is pretty simple, is it? You know, uh, fiber, single mode, multimode. What the connection types are, and then what the signal is. So, usually when we start an integration uh, project, uh, we fill out our own checklist of what's at each one of these levels for both the uh, primary and sub networks, and it gives you a better idea as far as if we have to construct. Uh, any kind of interface or go by an interface, what might be required to make that happen. Backing up a little bit in
1: what we were talking about earlier with the interoperability and the, the forethought and planning that has to go in, particularly when you're integrating a number of different systems and pieces of equipment, so much equipment these days comes with built-in direct digital control intelligence in the equipment where they're executing applications that the factory has loaded in. And then the the BMS, the building automation systems integrator, so to speak, has to figure out how to bring that all in, make it interoperate so that it can meet the functions that the specifications require. And 90% of the time these days, I see in that specification that the BMS vendor is given the responsibility of making sure all of that works. On bid day in a plan and spec project, no BMS vendor is talking to every equipment vendor or other systems uh, provider to figure out that problem, to have a plan to address that. It always ends up happening without a plan, without anyone Being the owner of making sure that is all being planned out and figured out ahead of time when the job's getting started up or being commissioned, uh, and I'm sure Mark and Clayton, you guys see this on projects you work on. It's like, why isn't it doing that? Why is why aren't we able to write to that set point? Oh well, that that's not in our controller. If there's not an owner's rep like a firm with vs energy's capabilities you know understanding experience and intelligence that happens 99 percent of the time and i constantly hear engineers say why do we have so much trouble with this and it's because no one has ownership of that from the from the start it always takes place at the last minute when it impacts the schedule of the job the commissioning process the turnover process, when everybody's trying to get off the job.
0: So it comes down to what we've we've talked about in our previous episodes is boots on the ground and doing your homework ahead of time, right?
1: Yeah, and absolutely. The jobs that I, I'm happiest to work on are the ones where there's an, uh, a commissioning agent or an owner's rep that takes ownership of this in the beginning, during the design and submittal process, and not at the the point where commissioning is taking place, and we're discovering all these things that don't do what the specifications required them to do, or what the the end user owner expected them to do.
2: Well, you're right, Rich, and and we see it quite often when we're when we're only involved at commissioning time. The standard practice now for the engineering community is to return submittals with no exceptions taken. You don't see approved. It's NET. And what we've seen, and we're, we're on a project right now that was supposed to have Modbus on all the drives, drives show up on site, uh, air handling unit submittals were NET, no exceptions taken. Drives don't have Modbus on board, and we get a shoulder shrug from the engineer. Owner says, well, what happens now? Well, you'll have to pay for it if you want it. And in my mind, they already paid for it once. So it's common, very common. The level of attention and or understanding is just not being taken, uh, nor, you know, there's just no enforcement of a spec and
1: equipment vendors on bid day. They're trying to be as cheap as they can to get the job. So they're not paying attention to the, the requirements and the specification that link it to another section of the spec, like from the equipment section to the BMS section Or the BMS section says refer to or the equipment section says refer to the BMS section for sequence that the, the equipment vendor never takes that step,
0: right? They think they're providing the required mechanical equipment, but the sequence of operations has it controlled, you know, differently than what they assumed.
1: Absolutely correct,
0: Clayton. And it
1: always ends up with the equipment not doing what the owner expected. You have an unhappy owner, particularly if they you it comes down to the equipment needs to operate the way it was specified for a good reason. Then exactly as Mark said, the equipment vendors at that point going, well, if you want that, you're going to have to pay extra for it. And I agree completely with Mark in a plan inspect job. When the specification said that you bid the job, you were awarded the contract, you own the specification, thereby I own what, is needed in that equipment to do what it says it's supposed to do
2: and Clayton um, you haven't been involved in that many bid projects but you know typically the controls contractor is a subcontractor to the mechanical contractor who might be a subcontractor to the GC so the bid day of the, the, the actual bid day is auction number one which means Everybody calls in a number to the mechanical contractor. You hope the mechanical contractor doesn't share your number with everybody else on the project. If they do, well, during the course of the bid process, which is the hour before the bid's due, your number can go from X to 0.7X. And then five days later, you might hear, hey, you're the lucky guy that got the guy or girl that got the job. You get a phone call and say, okay, now give me your best number and so you have to cut your price again, and then maybe two weeks later, okay, give me your best and final, and you cut your price again, and then, by the way, you own everything in that spec, and uh, you're gonna find out that the equipment vendor didn't do their homework, as Rich said, and you're gonna do twice as much work as you anticipated on the equipment side, because they went through the same auction process with the mechanical contractor, And don't plan on providing a
0: full scope of work. It's like you've seen this a time or two, Mark. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But I guess, you know, and and I want to keep all this in my mind too, tied into, you know, the the podcast discussion of open system operation and, and functionality. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I guess it all does tie in because A, it requires boots on the ground. You have to do your homework. To get a proper functioning open system, right? And there's more times than not, it seems like that what is perceived as an open system is necessarily not an open system.
2: That's true. And so I I just need to speak to the specifying open systems and specifying open integrations and interoperability. It's important, you know, in some cases not only to write inclusive specs to say, here's exactly what you must do, what we expect in terms of performance, but it's also necessary from our perspective to write exclusionary uh, specifications that state specifically what is not allowed. And when you read some of our specifications and look at projects that uh, we've put together for bid, There's a section of what may not be uh, performed, and that includes tunneling proprietary data using proprietary protocols. What's included in the commissioning process? That'll be we'll be applying a network analyzer. All proprietary protocols will be disabled prior to beginning the commissioning process. And when you when you say what you may not do, that is as important. As stating what must be done,
0: yeah, I, I, you know, for how for as long as I've been with you, Mark, and you know, VS Energy, I, I've seen that to be extremely important to have in the specifications, clearly defining what you can't do, so you can't get. Or it's it's better to it helps you stay away from the situation where the contractor is like, well, I I thought I could do this though, or I thought this was okay when it's clearly defined that you can't. It mitigates that.
1: That is so important, Mark and Clayton, and I agree with you 100%. I would love to see that be in a much greater percentage of specs because, in my experience, the percentage of specs that has that type of exclusionary documentation in their exclusionary language is probably less than 5%.
0: Really? but it
2: just makes it easier. There might be a hundred ways to do something and maybe only two or three ways that it shouldn't be done, but those are the, often the cheapest and easiest. Yep. It's just easier to exclude the two or three cheap, easy, ineffective ways to do it.
0: Yeah. No, that makes perfect sense to me. Uh, and it's it, it's worth bringing up because it's, it's important to have that in there or be cognizant of it.
2: You know, I'd like to hear from
0: Rich. Uh, what do you think an
2: operator user should be able to expect from a a open system and an integrated open open system. You know we we have from the designer's perspective commissioning agent perspective one thought process. I'd like to hear you know from your end what you you know see from your customers and what they want or think they want from uh, from open systems.
1: Well, most definitely when, uh, when we present, because we present on a, on a completely open system, open license, open source, uh, open, unfortunately, as we've talked a little bit about in some of the podcasts, there is not yet a standard programming tool uh, for all BMS systems. Um, I hope to see in my lifetime in the business that come to fruition. I know it's getting closer than it has been in a long time, but everyone's going to have a proprietary tool for programming, the application programming at the least. But from the open standpoint, their expectation is that they're going to have tools that are part of what they bought, that they don't have to have special licenses or anything like that that allow them to modify, add, uh, create database, uh, create the network structure, create their graphic screens, create their links, trends, all of those functions. Whether the system that it's connected to is vendor X or vendor Y, their expectation is that they can add you know, vendor X or Y at any point on the system, and it works seamlessly with their operator interface. The integrated side of it, their expectation is that through that integration, they are going to be able to manage and control that equipment the way the specification says, and that it will work to the sequence that the engineer has written for that piece of equipment
2: so rich now when we talk about an owner can procure yes install yes program yes their own systems so wh- from your perspective what does that mean for the value proposition that trinity has to provide to you know maintain their their business relationship long term with the owner clearly uh, you wouldn't want to be just a hardware provider, right? So how do you create value from your your perspective for the owner? We create value for
1: the owner by you know, basically being the expert in bringing all of that expectation to them. The, the, the open structure, the uh, ability to integrate the various systems not be focused on any single piece of hardware. I mean, obviously we lead with what we think is best in breed hardware. We feel that we pick the best manufacturers to represent. And we do that with more than just the, the whiz bang technology. We really focus on that whole open concept of you know open databases, open operating systems, open communication protocols. And the value proposition for them is that they've got uh, more of a partner that is looking to help them solve their problems and make their life easier than looking to just come in, do a project, get a service agreement, and run some revenue. Our whole business proposition model is based on that partnership and that whole open relationship I want my customer to be able to take whatever I have given him and be able to integrate that or meld it with any other system, even if he decides he doesn't want to work with me anymore. We maintain those great customer relationships by meeting all those expectations. And that whole satisfaction quotient that we spoke about in an earlier podcast is very high. So the customer doesn't, you, you keep that high, the customer has no reason to want to go elsewhere. They feel that they're getting good value, good service, and a good partnership. I'm not 100% sure, Mark, if that is driving towards what you were asking, but that's kind of my how
2: I look at it. No, I I agree 100%. And we're actually, VS Energy, we don't have any hardware to sell. We have nothing. So all it is is, Uh, application expertise building systems understanding and you know like we said we're we say it it's in our tagline we're committed to excellence and you know no compromise as we as we go through the engineering process as we go through the commissioning process in an effort to provide high performance low or trouble-free building operation, which basically that's, that's a big way in which, you know, BS energy and Trinity are aligned.
1: We, in both this company, Trinity and the past company that I I worked for before it became, you know, part of a, a fortune 50 company, we were so far off the normal model of business that the, that the big three big four type people shoot for they look for a service revenue base that basically generates margin to cover their entire overhead cost yearly. So they want to sell projects and get service agreements. The model that we've had and had in the previous company was we want to sell projects and have satisfied customers. We don't want them to feel like they're going to have to be locked into a service agreement to be able to operate their system. We give them the freedom to do that all themselves. We make it available, certainly, if they want it from us. But we don't want them to feel like they are constrained and require you know, some service agreement annually just to be able to function with the system. Some of those larger organizations have been my best sales representatives because of that model of business. They have pillaged through service agreements for so many years that the customers have become frustrated and said, I can't deal with these people anymore. They cost me too much money for too little value. And I'm going to go to somebody that has a different business mindset that is going to be driven towards meeting my needs and not filling their pocket with my dollars.
2: Well, I mean, that goes back to the Markov switching model. Once once open systems are truly open, the only driver of company success is customer satisfaction. That's it. So that's the right thing to focus on, that's for sure.
1: And that's part of why we focus so much on open systems is that we want the customer to always feel like they have
0: choice. Not always feel, but always know that they have a choice. And that's probably why you guys have so much uh, integration and interoperability experience, because you come into these facilities with uh, proprietary systems or, you know, quote unquote, open systems where the customer isn't satisfied and you need to try to take what is already in place and be cost effective and efficient, and giving them a, a truly open system.
1: That's correct, Clayton.
0: Yeah, and I think that's a good spot to kind of wrap this podcast up. It seems like we jumped around a little bit, but it all ties together to the the thought process of open systems and the seven layer OSI model, and you know, integration and interoperability. So, thanks for listening. Stay tuned for our next episode, where we'll discuss the design of open systems for high-performance retrofits of existing systems. Have a
1: great day.